here on the HDS campus. And to those of you now joining us via the live cast, live webcast of this event as well. I'm Margaret Rose, MDiv 79, Chair of the Alumni Alumni Council for this year. It was my honor to present the Gomes Honors to five remarkable recipients just a short while ago in Andover Chapel. Now we will hear from each of them in a special installment of our Divinity Dialogue series hosted by the Council. I'd also like to begin by acknowledging the member of this year's cohort who is not herself a graduate of HDS, but who is known to many of us via her service on the faculty leadership of the Women's Studies and Religion program, and as we said in chapel, for illuminating the faces of divinity during our bicentennial year. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in a hearty round of applause for Gomes honoree Ann D. Browdy. Good afternoon. I truly could not have been any more surprised to be recognized by the HDS Alumni Council with the Gomes Honors, and I thank you all for this, this tremendous honor. Hearing the stories of the many alums who contributed to the Faces of Divinity exhibition has been one of the most gratifying experiences of my life, and many of the alums um, whose stories was mo most meaningful to hear were some of the older people who are not here today, but it was a real privilege to hold their, their lives and experiences in this exhibit. I've always admired and identified with the graduates of our school, but to be honest, I have always admired but never identified with Peter Gomes. <laughs> 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 to explain what I mean, let me take you back to a memorable event during my first month on the faculty in 1998, the monthly meeting of the august body known as the Professorial Committee. <laughs> With a combination of apprehension and anticipation, I took my seat as the newest and youngest member of the school's senior faculty. Dean Ronald Thiemann called the meeting to order. I think Preston was there at the time. Um, Dean Thiemann turned to Peter, who sat at his right hand, and asked, Reverend Professor, will you lead us in prayer? <laughs> to which Peter responded, Mr. Dean, I will. <laughs> he then tucked his chin to his chest, squeezed his eyes shut, and intoned in his inimitable basso profundo, let us pray. <laughs> I furtively looked around the table to see how my new colleagues were responding to a situation for which nothing on my multi-page CV that had earned me a spot at this table had prepared me. Inexplicably, none of my colleagues seemed to share my confusion. In fact, they all calmly bowed their heads and closed their eyes 
as if it were perfectly ordinary and expected, which it had not been in my previous job, <laughs> to begin a faculty meeting this way. <laughs> Clearly, I did not know the secret <coughs> handshake required for admission to this club. <laughs> Feeling invisible among so many scholars with downcast eyes, I stole a glance across the room at my two older male Jewish colleagues, the only other non-Christians in the room. One of them looked out the window. <laughs> the other was opening his mail. <laughs> Neither of these options seemed to embody exactly the impression I desired to convey during my first appearance at a, in a decision-making body of the Harvard faculty. I was eager to show respect and appreciation to the faculty that had welcomed me into its ranks, yet I needed to do so while remaining true to my identity. In short, I had absolutely no idea what to do. It appeared, as more than one of my relatives suspected, that HDS was no place for a nice Jewish girl. <laughs> Little did I know that Peter Gomes, who at that moment seemed to be part of the problem, would also turn out to hold the key to the solution. For Peter, like me, came to HDS as someone who might have seemed to be an outsider to the institution, but who claimed the institution as his own refusing to accept a shred of marginalization. Peter was a gay black man who made the radical decision to claim centrality and claim it with every fiber of his being, with every word, every gesture, every sermon, every prayer, and every off-color joke of which he told many. Peter became the ultimate insider, the keeper of Harvard's sacred history and traditions. He was knowledgeable enough to teach the course on Harvard's history, which he did for many years, and confident enough to make us laugh and sometimes cry at its many ironies. And in 1992, Peter Gomes, excuse me, <clears throat> curated the exhibition honoring the 175th anniversary of the founding of Harvard Divinity School. Who remembers that? Somebody besides Preston? Anybody besides? I could not have done this exhibit without Preston. He remembers everything. Uh, I studied each of Peter's choices carefully as I embarked on curating the bicentennial exhibition. One of my favorite juxtapositions in the Faces of Divinity exhibit consists of two images of Peter in a display in Divinity Hall where he lived as a student and served as proctor. The display is entitled Preaching the Conscience. The larger of the two images shows Peter as we knew him in the pulpit, an image of moral authority clad in crimson robes and clerical collar the index finger of his right hand raised to emphasize his point, the image of a golden cross on the choir grail behind him supporting the man of God. A smaller photo beside it was taken 40 years earlier. On the day of Peter's ordination in his home church, the First Baptist Church of Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1968, 
It shows Peter with another HDS alum, Conrad Wright, then the school's professor of church history, who preached the ordination sermon that day, as he did for many of his students. The image shows a young Peter Gomes with a gleaming twinkle in his eye and a bright smile glowing with satisfaction at his accomplishments and impish delight, as if to say, it may be 1968, but don't count me out. I may live in a world of racial injustice and political upheaval, but that does not define me, and I've got plans, just you wait. <laughs> this is the twinkle I have seen in the eyes of HDS students from home churches and barrios and temples and religions in parts of the world and of our country, which their peers and their teachers may have little understanding of. And that is the possibility that I hope the Faces of Divinity exhibit holds out to every HDS student. The possibility to claim this school as their own, to use its resources to train for purposes we as a faculty do not yet know. I wanted every student who has felt invisible and excluded because they did not know the secret handshake to be able to find something in the school's past with which they could identify and connect. Some shred of evidence that yes, they do belong here and that they deserve to be part of this great enterprise. That is what every one of today's Gomes honorees has done. And it has been my privilege to witness and support that process in generations of students over the last 20 years. Much has changed at HDS during that time, much for the better, particularly the composition of the faculty and of the curriculum. But much has remained the same as well. Since that first professorial committee meeting, I have attended approximately 150 faculty meetings, <laughs> which has taught me one thing, if nothing else. Prayer is far and away the most rational and productive <laughs> to begin a Harvard faculty meeting. <laughs> Better than many of the other options. And all a nice Jewish girl can do is to thank God for our students and our graduates who make it all worthwhile. Thank you. Divinity Dialogues was created by the Alumni Council in 2012 to showcase the inspiring and diverse personal and vocational stories of our alumni. As graduates, we know the importance of stories to our lives. Here together at HDS, our individual stories and how these weave together to make our communal story. Today, we will hear from the 2018 cohort of alumni recipients. Each honoree will share a bit of his or her story with us and how they came to this amazing and risky place of public voice. We have only a short time together, but each of us, I'm sure, will benefit from giving, getting even a glimpse of these fascinating people. 
Let's begin with Robert Michael Franklin, Jr., MDiv 78. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, to Dean Hempton and to Margaret and Quadricus, to the terrific members of the Alumni Council, very grateful for this tremendous honor. Uh, today we gather. Uh, I also acknowledge my dear wife, Dr. Cheryl Franklin, who is a graduate of the medical school here, and so it's a wonderful return pilgrimage for each of us. And to these extraordinary fellow hon honorees, Anne, Jelaine, Simran, and Karen. One week ago, much of the world paused under the banner of Martin Luther King as we remembered his transition and the, his unfinished agenda. And today we gather, it seems quite appropriately, under the banner of the very reverend and dear Peter Gomes, who was a teacher and a mentor for me and a friend to all of us, I know. Uh, one of the things that Dr. King used to say, and I see it in the life of Peter Gomes here, is that this hour in history needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. He continues, the saving of our world from pending doom will come not from the actions of a conforming adjusted majority, but from the creative maladjustment. Isn't that a great phrase? From the creative maladjustment of a transformed minority. And so I take Dr. King's language about transformed nonconformists and how a small dedicated circle can set history on a different course. And that, of course, is the story of my fellow honorees today. I use the language of moral leadership as the big headline for what I think so many of us ought to be engaged in and what HDS has meant for me, really helping to launch my public voice as uh, an aspiring uh, moral leader. As Quadricus noted earlier, I utilize the definition of moral leaders as women and men who live and lead with integrity, courage, and imagination as they serve the common good and as they invite others to join them along the way. And that notion of invitation is exceedingly uh, important to the genius of moral leadership. In our time, despite the skepticism, despite despair in so many communities, I find that we are still capable of being moved by moral leaders. Pope Francis, Malala Yousafzai, and so many others in all of our lives, not to mention those as we look back. Peter Gomes, Martin Luther King, Mandela, Mother Teresa, and on and on the list goes. We are still capable of being moved deeply by such lives. For me, HDS provided a context, a rich milieu of critical inquiry, of deep respect for other traditions, traditions new to me, uh, and an environment that encouraged us to take risks to be open to novelty and new possibilities, as Tillich spoke of it. Um, here it was as a young African-American Christian in formation for ministry that I encountered the power of Hindu traditions and teaching and learned a little about satyagraha and of Sikh practices of peace promotion. Here I learned more about Buddhist approaches to suffering and to mindfulness and to self-care in the midst of great struggle. 
Here I learned something about Shabbat from Hebrew traditions and the power of tikkum olam as part of my call to heal a broken uh, world. Here I learned to respect and be impressed by the elegant ritual structure of Islam and its five pillars and the spirituality that animates them. And so I recommend this as an extraordinary institution that can nurture and can help, uh, uh, help leaders claim their public voice in an exceedingly diverse uh, uh, public uh, domain. Today we live in liminal times, to invoke a notion from Victor Turner and other anthropologists of religion. Times of ambiguity, times that call for what John Cates demanded that we embrace a posture of negative capability. That is the ability to live with ambiguity, to thrive amidst uncertainty and unpredictability, and continue to move forward. And it seems to me in the age of Trump, we live with extraordinary moral and intellectual anarchy and ambiguity. And the times when we need voices that make sense, voices that respect facts and evidence, and voices that offer hope and the possibility of healing our divides. I would conclude by noting that King, and I've been recommending his letter from Birmingham jail. I can't see our timekeeper. Oh, he's back there, so he hasn't. All right. <laughs> King, in the letter from Birmingham jail, really challenged American, in that context, Southern Christian churches, white churches. But I think it's a broader call now in terms of breaking the silence. That's why I appreciate Anne's framing of this as a public voice. The need for congregations and moral leaders to move beyond their silence, the silence of good people, the silence of decent middle and upper middle class people, and to be courageous and to break the silence on behalf of, of justice, helping us to heal racial divides and divides in so many areas of our lives. Ralph Waldo Emerson, I conclude by noting as uh, another graduate of our beloved institution, used to meet people who we hadn't seen in some time by saying, what's become clear to you since we last met? <laughs> Isn't that a marvelous, intimidating question? <laughs> Do try it in Harvard Square later today. <laughs> what's become clear to you? <laughs> And I think the thing that's most clear for me is that Harvard Divinity School is the most remarkable place in this country to prepare to claim one's public moral leadership. And with that, Harvard Divinity School, I thank you. Thank you, Robert. We'll next hear from Jelaine D. Schmidt, MDiv 96, AM 05, PhD 05. Okay. Uh, my thank you to the Harvard Divinity School Alumni uh, Council for this uh, uh, bestowing of this award. It you know, came as a, a great surprise, and indeed, uh, Michael Getz, uh, uh, who's back here, had, had to follow up with me. I, I have such a full inbox after everything that has happened, you know, as you know, you know, in Charlottesville, the, the, the fallout continues on a weekly basis and we're still dealing with, you know, court cases and uh, hearings and, uh, you know, all, all you know, dispensing of medical funds to victims and, you know, many, many things. Uh, and so I'd missed it. 
you know, but he, he, uh, he pestered me, you know, followed up, and, and, and it just came as such a surprise, you know, it, it really, uh, you know, completely unexpected when we were, we activists in Charlottesville were planning last summer uh, to confront the alt-right. I mean, we, we, were, we were trying to preserve life and also our integrity, you know, by, by being a vocal, invisible uh, voice of dissent, you know, in, in, in public spaces, you know, and, and so just, uh, you know, to be kind of brought out of that, the immediacy of that, and, and uh, to be invited to come and, and uh, be with all of you is really uh, an honor, and I, I, I thank you, and I thank you for recognizing it as work, too, that dissent is work, and, and it's, it's the work of all of us, too, you know. Uh, not just the, the more visible ones. Now, as for Peter Gomes, <laughs> uh, he was a high church Baptist Afro-Saxon. Uh, that, was, that was his uh, self-description. He, he, he contained multiples, you know. Uh, he, he was an Anglophile and an instructor at Tuskegee Institute. Uh, stalwart New Englander, Harvard man, Christian minister of the gospel and conservative Republican for much of his life. Uh, uh, we haven't forgotten, although he, he uh, kind of migrated away from that, and, and uh, you know, which shows a, a propensity for, toward change and, and you know, something we should all bear in mind as we, as we move through life, how we, how we change and, and reevaluate uh, what we're doing. Uh, but a Christian minister of the gospel, uh, you know, was, this was his primary vocation. You know, you did you know through his teaching and through his you know friendships and through his wonderful hospitality at Sparks House uh, uh, as well, just kind of uh, bringing that uh, uh, part of himself. Um, and he, I remember, uh, you know, I, I I was here at Harvard Divinity School in the mid to late '90s uh, when uh, the uh, dream team of African American studies was being. Uh, 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 put together by one uh, Skip Gates, you know, here in the yard, and this was one of the reasons that, that I wanted to stay for my doctoral work then, to kind of, you know, kind of continue on with that. And, and uh, uh, Peter was, was a part of that. I mean, he'd, he'd been here, of course, you know, much longer than most of these relatively new rivals. Uh, but but he, uh, he was, you know, tickled, to, you know, to have, uh, uh, see this, you know, this growth in, in this area. And this sort of thing, and I and I remember, you know, really, really clearly. Of course, you know, Peter, you know, lived there in, in Sparks House, there on the on the corner, you know, near Francis Avenue, and, you know, and all this. And he had his famous annual uh, strawberry teas. I, I believe I never got invited. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, a sea of 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 of, of hats and and and, and all things, you know. Uh, but anyway, so so you know the, the the luminaries, you know, and there were always many here on, on Francis Avenue, John Kenneth Galbraith, and you know, and many others, and, and Skip Gates, you know, moved in, and I remember uh, witnessing uh, 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 Gomes, you know, welcoming uh, Skip by saying, "Welcome to the hood, Skip. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the hood." In his uh, baritone, uh, deep baritone, as has been mentioned already, and, and, and distinctive uh, New England patter, you know. Um, so he, he was my teacher of liturgical preaching, and that is the hardest I have ever worked to earn a B plus. <laughs> so, um, but but this, this notion of, of preaching through the, the Christian liturgical year and of being attentive to the seasons uh, and, and uh, letting... Uh, are letting that, that, that calendar uh, pull us in uh, and, and, and to be uh, responding to the time and to be able to recognize it is a lesson that, that uh, 
uh, I take with me. Um, also, you know, I, I should say, you know, I, I mentioned the, uh, you know, the, the construction of the dream team of African American studies. Uh, you know, just uh, several years before I, I came here in uh, 1993, you know, uh, uh, Peter had a very dramatic uh, kind of coming out, you know, on the steps of the, of the Memorial Church in Harvard Yard, you know, uh, announcing to the world that, you know, I, I'm a Christian who happens to be gay, you know, and it was, uh, with that rolling R, it was so wonderful. Um, and helped to create HDS as a more LGBT positive space. And this was a time in the early 90s when gay seminarians were getting kicked out of their seminaries, you know, all over the country. And so this was a space where, uh, you know, queer folks could congregate and have a sense of safety in numbers and this sort of thing. And I, I just said yesterday to the career services as I was recounting that time, I said, it seemed like it was 50% gay, 50% uh, queer and 50% questioning or something, you know. <laughs> you know but, but, but Peter was, you know, part of, of you know, constitutive of, of, of making that space, you know, available. Like I said, he contained multiples, you know. Um, and you know what? One of my takeaways from uh, his mentorship of me is is the notion of, of Christian nonconformity, and this is something he talked about. You know, uh, the the troubling nature of the gospel. You know, uh, uh, in, in that uh, you know Peter, uh, you know from his perch there as you know plumber professor of Christian morals and preacher to the university, and that's a wonderful, wonderful title. But from his perch there in uh, in in the Harvard Yard Memorial Church. Uh, you know, he talked about uh, the congregation that came there on Sundays, you know, and also for chapel during the week. He said, this is a tough crowd, tough crowd, you know. Um, and he had to calibrate his uh, rhetoric accordingly, you know, uh, uh, you know, knowing that, you know, a lot of the folks are in the, in, the, in the congregation were themselves secular, but they came to, because they knew they were going to hear something, you know, some, some message of hope and, and, you know, and intelligently rendered and, and you know, from a from space of, of, uh, of faith. So. It, you know, he was often addressing elites, but calling them to task. You know, um, uh, and this this is, you know, saying that this you know the, the message specifically of nonconformity. Uh, it, it's troubling to those who most need to be troubled. You know, and I, I would say that that's everybody in this room. You know, so uh, so so look, lean into the to the discomfort. You know, going forward. Um, and, and he also said, you know, and this, this you know, was one of my takeaways as, as a Christian. I, I come to my, uh, my activism work uh, uh, from a commitment to following uh, Jesus, the, the persecuted prophet, you know. Um, the, the question that, that, that Peter raised was, was uh, you know, especially in, in that time, was it, the question isn't, is not what would Jesus do, uh, but rather what would Jesus have me do? And so that was, you know, kind of a, a takeaway uh, question that, that I need to ask myself for my own work uh, as, as I go forward. And this takes being attentive to the demands of the moment. Uh, and that takes knowledge of history, you know, which, which Peter was uh, uh, so wonderful, you know, as a teacher of, of uh, the history of the, of the Christian church, of the history of biblical interpretation, of the history of Harvard. I mean, there were just, you know, so many uh, touchstones that, that uh, uh, that were in his uh, uh, wheelhouse of, of instruction uh, for us. So I, I appreciated his, his knowledge of history and, and of, you know, uh, emphasizing to us again uh, of our place within it, you know, um, and how to be faithful and speak up uh, in, in these moments publicly, you know. Um, 
And he, I mean, he himself, uh, from the pulpit in Harvard Yard, uh, spoke out against the Iraq War. That was rather shocking. It was un unlike him. He really, you know, from the pulpit, tended to stay away from, you know, kind of overtly uh, political calls. But he just, he really felt that at that time in 2002 that, that you know, that he, he needed to do that. And, and uh, you know, so that was an example. So, so in order to mobilize others to be brave, he spoke out. And, and, and that is... is uh, uh, something I took away. And in my case, this, this nonconformity uh, was not so much opposing the alt-right. I mean, that was kind of a given. I mean, I mean, the vast majority of people goodwill everywhere are in opposition to Nazis and Klansmen. I mean, that, you know, this, is, this was not a hard call, you know? <laughs> right? Um, but a fair number of the powerful voices in my genteel southern city of Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, uh, that is professors, politicians, police, and yes, preachers. Yeah. Uh, they were opposed to protesting. Far right. They, they told us to stay home, you're just giving them attention, just ignore them. That, that was the advice coming from official spaces, you know, there in the town. So, uh, so it was an act of, uh, it was, you know, really a kind of confronting a lot of social pressure, I guess, to conform, you know, uh, uh, to that. And, and so to kind of seize that moment and to decide deliberately to defy uh, uh, the kind of conventional wisdom. And, and you know, and this is not, you, you mentioned uh, MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail, which is every, I, I, I assign that everywhere. I, I, there, I just assigned it to you. I'm a professor. <laughs> Go find it on the internet. And, and it's just as relevant now as it was then, you know, this, this, Kind of you know oh just hold back and you know don't be so strident and you know, is now really the right time and you know the, all these sorts of questions this this moderate voice of reason you know uh, is is uh, uh, to be uh, protested so we refuse to conform and I you know take away uh, this you know that which would have sought our moral silence Peter taught me not to <laughs> you know and uh, so I. Uh, um, we'll now be silent, uh, not morally, though, uh, to allow us <laughs> to say that. Yeah. Thank you, Jelaine. Yes. We'll now hear from Simranjit Singh, MTS 08. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, thank, thank you all for being here. Uh, thank you to the Alumni Council. Congratulations to the honorees, um, and, and thank you to the wait staff uh, for, for your support over our lunch. Really appreciate it, so thank you. Um, yeah, and applause is <laughs> So, So I grew up in Texas, um, so, so nonconformity was sort of a given. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it wasn't very easy for me to look like I was conforming. And I, you know, I still don't really know why my parents thought it would be a good idea to raise four brown-skinned turban boys in, in Texas. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I, came, I came into my intellectual formation um, and my ethical formation um, in the wake of 9-11. Uh, I was in high school when the terrorist attacks happened, um, and the, the violent backlash that, that ensued uh, really put a number of minority communities in, in a tough spot. Um, and it became a, 
a life and death proposition um, for us to raise our voices. And the challenge that we kept running into was how do our communities raise our voices when we don't have a platform? And this has been something that we have been discussing for decades now. I, I'm not just talking about the Sikh community. Um, I'm talking about Muslims, Arabs, South Asians. A number of marginalized, underrepresented communities have not had power in this country for decades. And we've been struggling with that. And in the context of post 9-11 violence against those who appeared to be the enemy, um, it became immediately apparent to us that we needed to build and do something better. And so for, for me, um, you know, I, I, was in, I was in college as I was trying to figure out how to do this work. Uh, the, the term we call it in our, in our tradition is seba, right? It's, as, as we describe, this idea of, of justice work that is inspired by a sense of love. And how do we do this work in a way that is simultaneously authentic to us as people where we don't feel like we're compromising our values? Um, and how do we do it in a way that's strategic, that actually makes a difference in this country? Um, and, that's, and that's how I found myself at Harvard, at, at Harvard, Divinity, Harvard Divinity School. Um, I came here, I think, like everyone else I know, I came here feeling like a complete imposter. <laughs> and, and, and I mean that in multiple senses, right? I, I, on, on the one hand, I felt like I didn't belong um, intellectually. I, you know, the admissions office must have made a mistake. <laughs> um, I, I felt that as, as a Sikh who, whose communities, you know, we don't have any sort of seminarian tradition. Um, and, and Harvard has been historically inclusive, but there, there weren't many people like me in these spaces. Um, I, also, I also mean that as a, as a, you know, coming from Texas into the Northeast, and, and a story that I have never shared, but I will now is just a very quick one. I came, I was, I came the summer before my program started. Um, I didn't have friends here, so I was running a lot. Um, one day I was running, and, and a and a couple of young guys called me over to their truck. Uh, they said they had speakers to sell on a huge discount. Um, I thought I was getting a good deal. Um, I told them I didn't have cash. They offered to drive me to the bank. <laughs> they, they watched me put in my pin code. I invited them up to my apartment. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so it was yeah, very, very much an imposter. <laughs> Uh, yeah, country, country boy meets, meets the big city. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but so I, I come into Harvard and I, I feel like a complete outsider. Um, and it took me a few months to really settle into what I was trying to discern as a person. And my question was this, do I strategically, what do our communities need more? Do we need folks in the nonprofit sector? Do Activists, right, is how I sort of frame that. Do we need folks in activism or we, do we need folks who are in scholarship and have the sort of power and credibility that comes with that affiliation? And I, I did not want to choose one or the other, but I had never seen someone do both at the same time. And I didn't know if it was possible. And, and HDS was the first place that I ever saw 
models before me who were doing that work. And my, my advisor was Diana Eck when I came in, and this was sort of when the pluralism project was really picking up steam. And, and to see that in action, somebody doing this work with intellectual rigor, creating a foundation for real understanding based on, based on facts, based on history, based on real people, um, but to do it in a way that connected with communities and met their needs. That's, I saw that and I said, that's, that's what I want to be doing. And so for me, Harvard Divinity School became a place for intellectual and ethical formation, right, where I was understanding myself how to do this work in conversation with my peers, but also seeing models of what is actually possible in this world that is not actually visible to, to people in other contexts. So, so for me, that's, that's sort of the greatest gift that I received from this institution. And I realized um, years later, um, I was in my PhD program, um, and, and as, you know, in the wake of the, the anti-sick massacre in 2012, um, still, you know, it was the first time that our community had been in the national spotlight in its history over a century here in America. Um, and we still felt like we didn't have the proper resources, platform, voice to represent ourselves or to even be represented by others. Mm -hmm. and, and that's when my, my commitment really started. I, I didn't feel comfortable as if I was fully prepared to do this work. Um, but I felt like it was a time for me to step up and use my privilege as a way of serving a community that needed me at the time. And it was, it was in these moments that I, that I had another sort of realization that's, that's been actually quite powerful for me since, and, and it's essentially this, that in a, in, a, in a political context like this one, people who look like myself and the others you see represented on this panel don't actually have a choice to be public voices for their communities. It, for us, it is very much a fight for survival. It's urgent, and it's, it's life or death. And, and that recognition for me that, you know, I feel called to do this work because my community needs me and the communities I'm serving need me, um, it's taken a lot of the personal pressure off, but it's, again, sort of shifted this, this the way that I'm thinking about this, not, not in terms of myself and what I'm doing, uh, but in terms of the bigger picture of, of what, the what our communities need and what our society needs. So for that, all, for, for all of this sort of wisdom that I've received from, from Harvard, I'm, I'm eternally grateful. And thank you all. Thank you, Simran. We'll now hear from Karen Che, MDiv 2000. Thank you. Um, where's Anne? Okay, so Anne, I was thinking I'm not going to start with a prayer. <laughs> However, I would like to start with a poem, which is anonymous. May we be reminded here of our highest aspirations and inspired to bring our gifts of love and service to the altar of humanity. May we know once again that we are not isolated beings but connected in mystery and wonder to this universe, to this community, and to each other. 
So it's so beautiful upstairs. Just, just the beauty of it reminded me not only of Harvard Divinity School, but also how people throughout the world are able to keep the faith and do what they do. And I was reminded of just a few months ago in Burundi, being with our defenders. And as many of you know, Burundi's in a very difficult situation. Many people, many, many people have been killed. Many of our lawyers also very much threatened. And I remember that we were sitting outside after dinner, talking about the seriousness of everything. And then the story started coming, and the story started coming. And then I looked at my watch, and I said, shouldn't we get going? Because I realized that there were going to be many checkpoints, and that the later we stayed out, the more dangerous it was. And they looked at me, and they said, one more story, one more story, one more story. And actually, I admit, I was chicken. I was the first one to leave. <laughs> But what I realized was that, which is something that I learned also and came to understand at Harvard Divinity School, is that it was, it was the glimmer of hope. It was the beauty of community. It was able, being able to be together in such trying circumstances that allowed them to keep the faith and somehow believe that they would keep going. And they said, oh, you know, we don't know. We don't know. And my colleague, I remember, talked to me and he said, you know, Karen, we don't know if, you don't know if you're going to see them again. Mm. We don't know what's going to happen. And, um, and I just realized that they, they were the same way. We're going to keep going and, you know, we're going we're gonna to tell that last story. And that prophetic imagination that they can create another world, even in such darkness, has been something which has given me so much hope. And I will say, you know, as I passed up, I passed by Preston and I passed by Dudley, and I said, well, it's a good thing that you passed my senior thesis <laughs> because my senior thesis was International Bridges of Justice. And I said, because if you hadn't passed it, I might not you know, be here. So it's somewhat intimidated, I have to admit, that um, Marie is here and Dutch, who's given me advice through the years, and also one of my donors. <laughs> And at the same time, I think some of the things which Harvard Divinity School gave me are, are very apparent. Preaching, um, my senior thesis, creating International Bridges of Justice, learning many of things. And what I want to touch on today, though, is something that I think is an intangible, which is really how and why I started International Bridges of Justice. I, I came to Harvard Divinity School, I mean, I would say on the outside, as a wonderful, spunky, happy, energetic person. And I will also say that I came somewhat broken. And I'm still broken. Mm -hmm. I'm broken and I'm healed, and I'm broken and I'm healed. Mm -hmm. But I had been through so many experiences, first as a public defender, and then living in Cambodia for three years, where I saw so much torture. And I was working case by case by case. Mm -hmm and feeling like, how can, we, how can we do this? And some part of me thought, oh, I'm gonna to go to Harvard Divinity School because I've done my 10 years as a lawyer in human rights and now I get to be at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and somehow, um, that didn't quite turn out exactly as I imagined it. But it turned out to be something much greater and much more beautiful. Because Harvard Divinity School 
is where my public voice was born. Harvard Divinity School gave me inspiration. It gave me courage because I realized that courage came from hope, came from love. And I began to study and realize that many people have changed history, have co-created history by building the beloved community, by being together. And I started to see how, despite the fact that I was thinking I'm one person at a time, we could really bring it together in a different way. Thich Nhat Hanh says that in order to save the world, we always think it was gonna be something really, really deep and loud and long that he would say. He'd say, in order to save the world, he says, we have to allow ourselves to hear the cries of the world. And what I believe that Harvard Divinity School did the most for me is it gave me the space that allowed me to hear the cries of the world. It allowed me to feel my own brokenness. It allowed me to understand that I could walk with questions maybe that I would never be able to answer. And yet, in the presence of community and each other, that we could change the world, step by step by step. And so for me, because my prophetic voice, my prophetic voice, along with all of your prophetic voices, and my public voice is about ending torture as an investigative tool, I'm gonna to take one of my seven minutes <laughs> and just tell you that I began International Bridges of Justice because I walked into a prison one day in Cambodia and saw a 12-year-old boy who was tortured and denied access to counsel. And what I realized at that time was that there were actually not just thousands, not just tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, there are millions of people in the world who are picked up, tortured, not for political reasons, but because it is the cheapest form of investigation. Mm -hmm. And that they continue to remain amongst the most voiceless in the world. It's also, ironically, one of the easiest problems to solve because governments throughout the world, like the Cambodian government at that time, and like many of the almost 50 governments that we work with today, most of them say, you know what, don't touch my five political prisoners, but you want to help these poor people who have their fingers broken immediately because it's the cheapest form of investigation? Help build my legal system. But what I recognize is that the world was also sometimes afraid to hear the cries of the world because it looked like such a big and such an overwhelming problem. So I began with the support of Harvard Divinity School and the Kennedy School to walk forward in this vision of what we might do together. I created International Bridges of Justice. And what's happened for me is that I've learned a lot. <laughs> and now more than ever, I realized that what we believed, that it was about hope, faith, love, and forgiveness, is really true. Like all of us, and many of us, and many organizations, we've seen highs, and we've seen lows. A number of years ago, we went through a major financial crisis, mm. where we lost a huge amount of our core funding. Mm. And as I went from country to country, defender to defender, I discovered something really interesting. And I'll tell you the example of Aline from Burundi. We're on Burundi today. See, all these countries, I chose Burundi. And I remember taking Aline's hand and saying, Aline, you know, your salary has gone down from 1,000 a month to 800 to 500. I know you're saving lives. 
I know you're preventing torture, but you have to find another job because we can't do it anymore. I remember that she took my hand and she looked at me and she said, Karen, I need you to understand that our commitment with International Bridges of Justice is greater than the budget. And so we are going to keep on, keep on, keep on. And I'm, I'm happy to tell you that not a single one of our country programs closed. In Rwanda, they found a broom closet somewhere. In India, they found different ways of partnering. They, they just continued to go in the most innovative and resourceful ways. But let me tell you what's also really awesome is that as everything and in the ebb and flow of life, I always say that we lost funding through no bad acts of our own, although we had a lot of bad acts. <laughs> but we found funding again through probably no good acts of our own anyway. And suddenly it came back. And when I was last in Burundi, one person, the head of the organization said, you've got to come here and meet this man. It's really important. And as I looked at him and shook his hand, I suddenly understood who he was. And he was a security guard who said to me, you know, it was a difficult time and I'm not a lawyer, but I did what I could. And I feel that about all of us here, that we are together, sometimes broken, sometimes whole, sometimes happy, sometimes sad, but we are doing what we can. And I just want to thank you because it was so beautiful today. It's so beautiful to be with all of you. And I just say we just keep on, keep on, and we are bending the arc of history, and thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to all of you again Robert Franklin, Jelaine Smith, Simranjit Singh, Karen Che, and Browdy, the 2018 Gomes Honorees. Greetings. I am Quadricus Bernard Driscoll. I'm the vice chairperson for the council this year. This has been an amazing day, yes? yes. Give yourselves a hand. <laughs> Congratulations to all the honorees. You each inspire me personally and you inspire us all. Being a member of the Alumni Alumni Council is always an honor. I've served on the AAC now for the past several years, and I'm consistently struck at how this dedicated group continues to be about the work of lifting our public voices collectively and helping HDS to bring the alumni community together.